1: Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com national editor, Matt Myers. It is the beginning of the second half. We are recording this on Thursday afternoon. There is one game tonight, Houston and Texas, and then everything gets back to full speed ahead. So we're going to look ahead to the second half. We've got a bunch of things that we want to look out for, StatCast-wise, baseball-wise, stat-wise, and at the end, perhaps some trade deadline-wise. Uh First off, thank you to everybody who watched the StatCast version of the Home Run Derby the other night. It was super fun. Uh, It's very hard to broadcast because there are several balls in the air at the same time, almost literally, uh, but we had a blast and everybody seemed to enjoy it. So thank you very much. The first thing I want to look out for in the second half, I have to start with this. Will Mike Trout set a new barrels record, right? Mike Trout is the best player in baseball. There should be no argument about this. Uh, He has a shot to set a record record. For the most barrels in a season, this is the fifth year of StatCast. Barrels, for those who don't know, are the perfect combination of launch angle and exit velocity. It's great to hit the ball hard. It is better to hit the ball hard at an angle that leads to dingers. The current record is 87 barrels by Aaron Judge in 2017. That is a full 10 more than Miguel Cabrera had the year before. Mike Trout currently at 48 barrels. So I ask you, Matt, yes or no?
0: Uh, I'm gonna say no just because I think that as the season goes on, especially if the angels are playing in meaningful games, he'll get pitched around a lot more because he's by far the best player uh, on that team and in, and in baseball. but it's it's fun to watch, I mean it's, it's honestly looking at the numbers, it shocks me. How far and away Judge is yes. from anyone else. He, is 10, <laughs> he is 10, Obviously, okay, only five years of tracking. This only goes back to 2015. So if you're wondering, the top five reads like this. Judge, 87 in 2017. Miggy, 77 in 2016. Stanton, 76 in 2017. J.D. Martinez, 74 in 2015. And Nelson Cruz, 72 in 2016. So Trout is going to end up in that... S- Range the question is if he, you know, he'd only be the second to get to 80, which is something in its own right. He
1: is on pace for 83, he has 48 barrels in 91 team games. If you look at the leaders this year, he's number one at 48. I was pretty surprised to find that number two with 43, was Jose Abreu, who I don't really consider to be having that great of a year. I know he made the All-Star team, but it's on-base percentages like 299 or something like it's, that.
0: It's an interesting combination. Basically, when he puts the ball in play, he hits it hard.
1: Number three at, <laughs> number three at 42 is Pete Alonso. It's going to take me a minute to just see Alonso written down and not immediately go for Yonder Alonso, who just got released by the White Sox. Um, Pete Alonso clearly is for real and then tied at 41. Kristen Yelich and Freddie Freeman. Uh, Mike Trapp, by the way, is hitting... 301, 453, 646. He is number one in expected weighted on base. Uh, that is our quality of contact and amount of contact metric. But separately, there is another barrels uh, issue to talk about here. Barrels per batted ball rate. Joey Gallo right now is at 26%. That is number one of any season of Statcast because Joey Gallo crushes baseballs.
0: As we saw in the All-Star game when he uh, came in, saw one pitch, and it has, hit an absolute laser, the hardest hit ball uh, that we've seen in an all star game since 2015. So
1: you say no. I'm going to say yes, uh, even though your reasons are very valid. And that's just because I always bet on Mike Trout. I mean, he's having the best season of his great career. Yeah, I'm not
0: a hitting coach, uh, as you might have figured out by now, but I do, watching him, I feel like visibly his swing has gotten like cleaner and more compact
1: he's dropped a strikeout rate like he always gets better at something it's completely unfair
0: it's 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 again i could be sort of just projecting because it's like oh mike trout's good and his numbers are better therefore he must be but it just seems like his his swing is cleaner and prettier than ever
1: okay i'll buy that uh i'm gonna say yes you're gonna say no matt hates mike trout it's on the record now number two this is a kind of a fun story written by our friend andrew simon it's up at mlb.com can christian yelich be the first 50 30 guy? so 50 dingers 30 steals. Uh, in baseball history, there are 40 30 30 guys and four 40 40 guys Barry Bonds, Jose Canseco, A Rod, and Alfonso Soriano. I definitely did not remember that Alfonso Soriano season.
0: Did he do it His one? It's like his one year with the Nats. It, I, make... I
1: think that sounds right, but I don't have it in front of me. Um, if you look at Kristen Yelich right now, he is the only player in history to go 30 15 in the first half. Now, huge, huge air quotes over half. Because it's more like I don't know fifty six percent of the season. Nine, or something been, like most that. teams
0: are playing around ninety. Have played around ninety games.
1: Uh, Andrew wrote this. If you extrapolate his pre break numbers over one hundred and sixty two games, you would get fifty five homers and thirty four stolen bases. So I thought that was interesting, and I thought, well, what can I do instead of extrapolating? Let's look back over the last calendar year, one hundred and fifty games over the last three hundred sixty five days. Excuse me, one fifty seven games, uh, fifty six homers. 31 stolen bases so he's sort of done it now i can't do that for every player who ever lived to find every like calendar year on a day-by-day basis so i can't promise you no one else has ever done that maybe they have but christian yelich has sort of it's not hard to see why he's in the 96th percentile for hard hit rate 89th percentile for sprint speed so he hits the ball hard and and he can run 99th percentile for expected weighted on base but as andrew noted if you look at projection systems, zips has him at forty seven homers and twenty-nine stolen bases. I feel like if he was there, he would just run wild the That's last the thing day. about stolen bases is like yeah. you can
0: kind of control how many you get.
1: And Steamer says forty-six home runs uh, and twenty-eight stolen bases. I feel like he's gonna get close and I think He's going to do it. I think he'll get there. I mean, Chris, here's the thing. There are record-setting numbers of home runs in baseball this year. But as we've kind of talked about, nobody's on track to hit, like, 75, right? There's just a ton of dudes who are going to hit 25, 30. I don't think it's unreasonable to think that Christian Yelich is going to get to 50.
0: No, not at all. And it's he, he sort of is, like, really sneaky uh, – St- stealing bases. Like, of all the players in the All-Star game, he led everyone in the All-Star game in stolen bases. He's third of the majors in stolen bases. I would, I would not have guessed that. That's <laughs> wild. <laughs> um, the top two are Adebelto Armandese Adibu- with uh, 28 stolen bases, Malik Smith with 23, and Yelich with 19.
1: He's going to lead the National League in stolen bases.
0: Because um, those guys are brought in the ale. Yes, the next... Number two in the National League... This is wild, actually. that I look at it, I had noticed that number two in the National League in stolen bases is Colton Wong with 14. (laughs) So he's not just leading the stolen bases. He's leading it by a lot. He's running away with stolen bases
1: in a way he's not running away with any other category. I say yes. I think he's going to do it. I think he's going to do it, too. Number three. Will the Astros issue an intentional walk? So far, zero. They have issued zero intentional walks. Uh, The Marlins have issued 32 intentional walks. Now... Before you think, well, that's because the Astros have a very good pitching staff and the Marlins less so. I don't think that's true. Uh, Number one, the Marlins have a better pitching staff than you think. They have a lot of interesting young starters. But the other reason is that the second fewest intentional walks are from Baltimore, who have an ERA of something like 40, um, probably related Baltimore hired their general manager from the Houston system over the over the winter.
0: Yeah, it definitely, it's 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 really interesting to see that Baltimore is number two on this list, considering how bad their pitching staff is, and it speaks clearly yeah. to a philosophy coming straight from the front office. We
1: are we are coming up on a full year since the last Houston intentional walk. It came last August seventeenth uh, against the A's. So we asked. Uh, we asked David Adler, one of our colleagues, to talk to AJ Hinch about this. And, and Hinch said, I think anytime you're adding the base runner to the mix, you're creating another situation that might not be to your advantage. Well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm not going to go through every single number here. I wrote about it on MLB.com, and you should definitely look at it. But you can look at all the run expectancy charts and pretty much any situation you can think of. If you are adding a runner, you are doing a little bit more damage in terms of expected runs than you are in terms of uh, gaining value from the potential of a double play caveat here. Those numbers do not look at who the individual hitters are. So if you are going to say walk Christian Yelich to get to the pitcher, then yeah, you probably want to do that, but that's the point. It's got to be kind of a huge value add to get past uh, the numbers, what they say.
0: And the other part about that is that a lot of the best hitters still strike out a lot. So like you can still, you can, you can say that, okay, yes, I'm facing Aaron judge, but like, I've got first base open. I can be pretty aggressive trying to throw him sliders loan away and see what happens. And if I welcome no big deal, like you're not really worried about like him, like, you know, like poking a single up the middle. Right. It's like, you know, a lot of the, the, the idea of these strategies with these one run strategies where teams are hitting a lot of singles and guys are going first to third and taking extra bases. Like that's not really the game right now. So even the best hitters, most of them strike out a fair amount. So like, you can still take your chances that like they're probably not going to get the runner home from third with a sack fly.
1: I have to say, I was a little confounded by the Marlins here. The year before Don Mattingly arrived, they had the eighth fewest intentional walks. Um, they have the most this year so far at 32. Last year, they had 73. That was the most. And the year before was the most. And the year before, that was the most. Since Mattingly arrived in 2016, they have issued 226 intentional walks, more than five times as many as the 40 from Houston. So we thought, okay, well, that's interesting. What's the strategy there? So I asked Joe Frazaro, our Marlins beat reporter, to ask Don Mattingly. And I have to admit, Mattingly's answer is a little confounding to me. This is what Mattingly said. And I quote, there's been a few of those where we've had open bases and the count gets to the point where you're like, okay, the next guy is a better matchup. You don't necessarily want to walk that guy, but you're also kind of pitching around him. If He doesn't chase new a good count. Then you're like, okay, just put him on and go to the next guy. That's great. That makes perfect sense, right? You're not mm-hmm. really trying to put them on. You think maybe, you know, you get into a good count. But the thing is, of those 32 intentional walks, 28 of them have been the no-pitch kind. Only four of them have actually been a pitch. So that doesn't actually line up with what seems to be happening here.
0: Um, yeah, it's uh, it's inter- it's an interesting uh, uh, response. And I guess, you know, the Marlins, they're kind of doing things their own way.
1: And, I you know, I kind of led with, the, will the Astros issue an intentional walk? This is not just an Astros thing. Uh, As you might not be surprised to find out, we are on pace for the fewest intentional walks in recorded baseball history. Uh, We are seeing about, you know, we're on pace for about 820 intentional walks. To put that in some context, in 1969, we saw over 1,400 intentional walks, and there were six fewer teams. (laughs) So that tells you a little something about something. Uh, There is still one area where the intentional walk is, I guess, thriving. Uh, Number eight hitter in the National League, nearly 38% of intentional walks are to the eight hitter and if you go back and look at the average since 1955 it's only 24%. There's still a place for intentional walks if you have a poorly hitting pitcher coming up next.
0: And that's a big part of it is that number 8 hitters used to be terrible and pitchers used to be better hitters and now pitchers can't hit at all and number 8 hitters have gotten a lot better so the gap is so much wider that there's much more incentive to walk number 8 hitters. I remember I remember like when when um Ray Ardonez was on the Mets, he used to get intentionally walked all the time. And I was like, yeah. this is crazy. This guy cannot hit. He cannot hit any better than pitchers. But now most number eight hitter, hitters are a lot better than Ray Ardonez was. Yeah,
1: I'm thinking of, like, when I was growing up, number eight hitters for, I don't know, the Dodgers were probably Alfredo Griffin or Jeff Hamilton or Mike Socia. Like, not exactly power bats, but now it's different now. like Everybody's kind of got a, a power bat there. Uh, oh, we need to answer the question. Will the Astros issue an intentional walk? I say no. I think they're going to do it. I think they're going to go the entire season and not do it once. I pray they don't do it tonight. <laughs>
0: uh I agree with you. I don't think they're going to do. It. I think it's so like in built into their philosophy now and also their bullpen is so good that like you, you know they they believe they can get strikeouts. Like there's not really and they're able to get really good matchups. I guess you know they do have Mike Trout in their division. I think they are they playing tonight?
1: No, they're playing Texas. Texas. Oh, sorry. Joey Gallo. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but like they do have Mike Trout in their division. So that could could raise one one area, but uh uh We're on the same page with this yes.
1: one. Okay. Number 4. Will Fernando Tatis Jr. keep outperforming his metrics? I think we we would agree that he is one of the three or four or five most exciting players in baseball. He is just so much fun to watch. Uh, A lot of fans, I think, got a little up in arms that he didn't make the All-Star Game. And it sort of depends on what you want the All-Star Game to be. If you just want it to be a collection of the most exciting young players in baseball, then absolutely yes. Uh, If you want to take into account that he missed a month and every team needs a representative, it's pretty easy to see why he didn't make it. But here are the numbers. Fernando Tatis Jr., 327. 393, 620. That's really, really good, especially for a guy who can play a strong shortstop. He also has a 419 batting average on balls in play. And if you were to go back through the entirety of major league history with guys who have had at least 250 plate appearances, so nearly 25,000 seasons, that 419 batting average of balls in play would be the seventh highest in the history of baseball. But it is not the highest of 2019 Brian Reynolds of the Pittsburgh Pirates sitting at 426. I'm going to take the under on Brian Reynolds, sustaining that for the whole year, although I do like him a lot. How
0: much do you think that is could be attributed to the fact that teams are aggressive with shifting, but these guys are rookies, so they don't have a, a huge track record? So that, like, teams are not quite getting them... They're not optimized, re- optimized. on the defense. <laughs> yeah. I think that's interesting. I, I, I could not seem like a coincidence that it's two rookies.
1: Uh, I think that's true. I also think Tatis is really, really fast. Right, so I think that's her- that's certainly helping with some of that, uh, but we can do better than just BABIP, right? So I looked at expected weighted on base, which is quality of contact versus and uh, amount of contact, and I compared that to just regular weighted on base. Tatis right now, his expected weighted on base is 338. It's about 10 points or so above league average, 15 points. Uh, his actual weighted on base 421. That's is an overperformance of 83 points. And I looked at everybody in the five years of tracking, and you won't be surprised to know that is the largest that we've seen. And two of the three guys behind him are Colorado Rockies, David Dahl uh, in 2016, and Charlie Blackman, who's having some kind of wild season this year. So when I see a guy who's overperforming expected outcomes more than anybody, I think I'll probably take the under. uh, And I wanted to know why, like, why is this happening? On ground balls, he has the ninth highest batting average in baseball. Okay, you know, that's He's elite speed, right? He's, he's 95th percentile speed. On line drives, he's hitting 833. That means 83% of his liners fall for a hit. That's not about speed. That's just about where they are or where they're positioned, uh, as you said. Major league average is 630, and on fly balls, which is kind of the same idea, his 529 average is fourth. So I don't want to make it sound like I don't like Tatis. I, I like him very much. I think he's a superstar, uh, but he's also striking out almost a third of the time and wildly overperforming his quality of contact I don't think he'll keep outperforming his underlying metrics and if that's true, Pete Alonso runs away with the National League Rookie of the Year. A while ago I thought, "Oh, Chris Paddock, I thought Alex Verdugo, a couple other guys." Uh it now it's Pete Alonso.
0: Yeah, he's probably going to hit 50 homers so that'll probably that probably be enough to 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 do it. I just want to make one point about Fernando Tatis Jr. I'm fascinated by players like this uh, sons of former big leaguers who aren't like their their father in any way oh yeah as players usually like you get a player and they're like a junior and it's like okay well like like vlad like vlad it's like okay like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree but like he's like this like rangy speedy dynamic like five tool player whereas like fernando tatis was just kind of like this like big slow slugger dude yeah Yeah. although i did just look at his special reference page and i had no recollection of him stealing 21 bases in 1999 But still my Ferdinand Tatis was definitely like your prototypical just like
1: when I when I was corner,
0: like Ferdinand Tatis Senior was your yeah, prototypical just yeah. like corner guy like you know, power, not much else. When I was
1: looking up uh, numbers earlier today, I accidentally went to his Fangraphs page, the seniors instead yeah. of juniors, and the most recent note, like they send the notes through through uh, RotoWire or wherever, was Mets manager Jerry Manuel saying Fernando Tatis may play some second base to get his bat in the lineup. <laughs> <laughs> so well, that is a snapshot from a very particular time yeah. in Mets think, history. Yeah, th- things have changed. <laughs> but,
0: you know, like, like I always also think of like D Gordon and Nick Gordon, who are like nothing like. They're, they, well they're not, they're not pitchers they're pitchers also just you know like it's just like uh it's always weird to me when that kind of when that happens like they're still great at the sport but in a totally different way
1: that is really interesting that, that would be like kind of a fun list to go through like do you consider you know Raul Mondesi and Alberto Mondesi to be similar like in some ways I guess but... I guess when Raul came up though that he still had like pretty
0: like he kind of he had loud tools when he came up
1: yeah but I guess it wasn't a shortstop no uh he may be already happening in April he had a 381 BABIP. In June he had a 531 BABIP, and in July 235. Still going to be very good. Still going to be uh, a star, I think, but maybe not quite to the level of power that we're seeing. No, but he's he's awesome. I mean, he's he's tagging up on pop ups to second so base. much fun to watch. We tracked him at like 92 miles an hour throwing a slider to first base, Tyra Cosmer a couple of days before the break. It was great.
0: It's sort of like like seeing him tag up on like I, twice in a week from like pop up second base. Yeah. It's sort of like.
1: Are we thinking about sack flies all wrong? Like, how was he able to do this? (laughs) Multiple times. He is awesome. Okay. Number five Will the Twins end up setting the all time record for slugging percentage? Right now, they have a 497 slugging percentage that is the highest in Major League Baseball history, above the 2003 Red Sox, 491, and the 1920, I can't remember if it was seven or eight. My note might be wrong, and 1930 Yankees at 488. Uh, That's really good. It's not a fluke, really. They also have the highest expected slugging percentage in the five seasons of StatCast at 483. That's the highest of any team. And if you look at their monthly slugging, it's been a little up and down, but it's not like they're trending downward. In April, it was 495. May, 521. June, 472. July, back up to 504. They have the highest tied with Tampa Bay, hard hit rate in baseball, and they have the lowest ground ball rate in baseball. Those things aren't unrelated to slugging percentage they have the number one rate of barrels per plate appearance at 10.1%. And I I guess you could kind of chicken and egg this one a little bit. Three of the 11 worst pitching teams in terms of allowing slugging are in the American League Central. I don't know that Chicago, Kansas City, and Detroit have good pitching staffs, but also they have to face the Twins, (laughs) whereas the Twins pitchers don't. So that's somewhat related. Uh, And they also have 10 different guys who have 150 plate appearances and a 450 slugging percentage or higher most of all time. Many, many teams are tied with nine, including last year's Dodgers and the 95 Cleveland Indians of Manny and Tomy and all those guys.
0: Where are you? Uh, you mean Albert Bell, the year he had yes, 50 homers and yes, 50 yes. doubles? In all, of uh, all of those
1: guys. All of those guys. I don't I don't think they're going to do it. You don't think they're going to do it? No, I do not. Why? This is the year to do it, right? Like This is the most powerful year in baseball history. Basically. And also not
0: to mention the fact that not only do these teams have – I will. I mean, I'm going to sort of like contradict myself a little bit. The teams in their division that have bad pitching are probably going to even trade any good pitchers that they right, have. Right. And what
1: if they face the Tigers and there's no Shane Green and it, there's no Matthew Boyd and there's no Joe Jimenez or whatever? Like,
0: yes, uh, this is fair. I'm as I said, I'm contradicting myself. I just think there's there's. I mean, we already saw them sort of scuffling a little bit out of the in early July. I th- I think that they're still going to lead the league in slugging. I just sort of expect. Kepler in particular probably Polanco to like maybe you know take a little bit of a step back I could be wrong I could be Mitch Garver is probably not going to slug 600 all season
1: I agree with you on that uh the the one thing I would say in their favor is that Miguel Sano missed a lot of time early in the season and now he's back and he is slugging uh 574 so if you get more snow going forward than you got so far that will help them that's true
0: um I'm, I'm I'm gonna say no what do you say
1: I'm on the edge of this. I, I don't think they are actually the best slugging team of all time, but I think they're a very good slugging team. I think their opponents make it worse, and I think this is the year to do it. So, how,
0: did, how did the Rockies not have this record?
1: Uh, we've talked about this a lot. Yes, they play in Coors Field, but A, they also guess, have to go on the road, that's true. which we know makes them worse, and the Rockies never really have like a good lineup. They've got like three stars and, you know, Daniel Murphy can't hit this year, right? Like, I, this is a whole thing. I guess I'm speaking,
0: I'm speaking more about like the, the Larry Walker years, but your, your point remains. Like, even then, like, you know, they would have huge, huge splits.
1: Okay. So uh, I say yes and you say no. Right. Will we see number six a new curveball spin record? Uh, so, what I've got here is the average spin on curveballs and knuckle curves in Major League Baseball. It keeps going up every single year. Uh, in 2016, it was 2461, then 2489, then 2497. Now we are up to 2522. That's RPM. That is almost certainly going to be uh, the highest we have tracked. The percentage of curves thrown at 2600 or higher RPM has gone from 30.3% to 36% to 36.3 to just under 40%. Now I think when people hear that, the first thing they think of is that the tracking is different, but I don't think that's true. I think it's just that everybody in baseball has become you know the teams especially are become so hip to spin rate that they no longer want guys who can't do it right like they are selecting out the guys who are bad at this and sort of favoring the guys who are really good at it and that will sort of make everything go up and, I, and the way i looked at this is in 2016 and 17 here's the guys who had the lowest curveball spin uh these are some guys by the way jeff Locke, travis wood blaine hardy ryan gartner garten and hobie milner if you don't know those guys because other than Hardy, they're not really pitching in baseball anymore. In 1718, 18 Corey Oswalt, Blaine Hardy, Hobie Milner, uh, Homer Bailey, who I guess has been okay this year, and Kevin Quackenbush. Teams like spinny pitches, and if you can't do it, you're probably not going to be pitching. And it's not its not only
0: if you can't do it, it's also that there are now much better methods with, like, edgotronic cameras where pitchers are, like, actually really studying their grips and their spin, and can it's something that people are consciously trying to improve. So it's not just – it's a weeding out of pitchers who can't do it and also everyone trying to get better at it. So the combination of those two things, it's not surprising to see this trend, but it's really glaring.
1: So I would say in terms of uh, what we see a new major league record for most spin, obviously yes. But here's my question. The individual curveball spin leaderboards for the last five years, minimum of 100 pitches thrown. Ryan Presley this year is currently sitting with the second highest spin rate ever at 3297 just ahead of Seth Lugo this year and just behind Seth Lugo in 2016. He is, uh, let's call it, 20 or so RPM, which isn't really that much. You could get there with a couple of high-spin games. I do like that if I look at the top five on this leaderboard. It's Lugo, Presley, Lugo, Garrett Richards, and Presley. <laughs> well, it's I mean, it's like velocity, right? You, you know, when you can do it, you can do it. Yeah. Uh, I I don't really have enough basis of caring about 20 RPMs to know if he's gonna get there, but he's got a shot anyway, and I think across the league, uh, 100%. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, exactly. That record, that quote unquote record, will be will be will be demolished.
1: Yes. Uh, number seven. This is this one silly, but I'm very excited about talking about it. Can Colin Pochet become a household name? Admit truthfully, before this morning, did you know what team Colin Pochet was on?
0: I did just because you talk about him all the time. <laughs> Mike talks about Colin Poche. This is not the first time
1: we've talked about Colin Poche on the show. Exactly. We we spoke about him. He was uh, an Arizona draft pick in 2016. He was traded to the Rays last May in the three-team deal with the Yankees. uh, That sent Steven Souza at Arizona, Brandon Drury to the Yankees. And the reason I'm talking about uh, Colin Poche is because he does not throw hard at all, and he dominates everybody. Uh, And a side note here, and this is a hat tip to our friend Richard Justice, Colin Boucher went to Marcus High School in Texas, which has produced two major leaguers in history. Do you know who the other one is? I didn't until Richard told me. Ryan Presley. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. <laughs> Someone get a scout to that school. Uh, here's the deal with Colin Boucher. He's been in 16 games, 16 innings, 24 to 2 strikeouts, walk. That's really impressive. But you think to yourself, okay, there's lots of guys, lots of relievers who could just come up and dominate some things. He only throws 92.7 miles an hour on his fastball, and he throws the fastball. of the time so I'm about to drop some numbers on you because this is all very fun to me he's only in the 36th percentile for velocity he doesn't throw over that hard 92.7 is not super impressive if you look at the 94% usage on his four-seam fastball it is the highest ever and ever in this case goes back to 2008 we have never seen a guy throw a fastball a four-seam fastball uh, as often as this. it's just above Jake McGee two years ago Sean Doolittle this year if you throw a fastball that often it's generally really impressive but it's not very fast And you would be interested to know it only has league average spin, right? But if we look at our rise above average boards, he is number one in fastball rise in terms of percentage rise above average. So what we do is we compare the movement of the pitch to other pitches at similar velocity and release points. He is 28% above average. That's more rise. His fastball drops 10.7 inches on the way to the plate. That is 4.2 inches less than other fastballs do. Just to put uh, Tyler Thornburg, who just got cut, by the way, Wait for him to go to Houston and be awesome, and you heard it here if he does, uh, and Sean Doolittle. Poche gets seven feet of extension. That is the 11th most out of nearly 400 guys. The average is 6.1, and if you're wondering, well, okay, can you be this effective with a fastball that's not that fast? The answer is yes. If you were to look at the leaderboards, an expected weight in on base, that's like our favorite metric here. And look at every pitcher who's thrown to 50 plate appearances that's nearly 500 guys number three is kirby yates number two is josh Hader. number one is colin poche small samples i know he has been unbelievably effective and uh by the way the reason we were talking about him last year was because of his minor league numbers if you look at 2017 2018 anybody who was in the upper levels of the minor leagues he had the highest strikeout rate in the entire minor leagues this has been colin poche facts (laughs)
0: My question is, why do you think, do you have a hypothesis, why he's able to get that kind of rise without a lot of spin?
1: It's a, it's a great question. I imagine he must have absolute perfect spin efficiency, like he gets the most out of it. Um, I think if you look at the, the video, like he's a little bit deceptive, that's not going to the towards the rise, but the extension sure talks about that a lot. Um, and it, it's kind of fun if you look just at swing percentage, right? Number one, Sean Doolittle. Number two, Colin Pochet, Number three, Josh Hader. <clears throat> Obviously, those guys throw harder. But all they do is throw fastballs, and I like it when a guy who just puts up video game numbers in the minor leagues can come up and do the same thing, and nobody's paying attention to it. It's except for me. It's a
0: comical. I'm looking at his. I'm looking at his uh, baseball Savant player page right now. He's thrown two. He's thrown 241 pitches this year. 228 of them are 14 fastballs. Yeah. Eight split finger. Four curves. <laughs> Hitters are hitting 1,000 against his foot fingers, but hitting 148 <laughs> against this his, his, the, his 4 This is the seamer. definition
1: of rising fastball. Like, if you watch it, guys are just not on it. They just, like, very uncomfortable all the time. And the Rays, man. The Rays.
0: The I was just, literally just about to say the Rays, man. <laughs> well, he came he came to the Rays from the D-backs in the Steven Souza trade. Yes. Um, and now we're going to talk about a guy in the D-backs.
1: We are Tim Locastro. We are we are into it deep, man. Colin Pochet to Tim Locastro. Tim
0: Locastro might be my new favorite player. In the so
1: future. this is Matt's idea to talk about Tim Locastro. Let me set this up here. Will Tim Locastro finally dethrone Byron Buxton atop the sprint speed leaderboards? I, I know right this second. Yes, I mean for the full season. Uh, if you look at the sprint speed leaderboards every single year, 2015 number one Byron Buxton, 2016 number one Byron Buxton. 2017 number two Byron Buxton. That's only because Victor Robles like barely qualified, like just barely enough. Uh, 2018 number one Byron Buxton and 2019 Tim LoCastro at 30.5 feet per second. Number two Byron Buxton.
0: I, w- I I in retrospect, I wish we had gone back at All Star Game media day and asked everyone in baseball, do you know who who is LeCastro the fast, is? Who is the fastest player in baseball? <laughs> and seen if anyone would have guessed. I wonder, Tim even, I wonder
1: if even like the Diamondbacks guys would have said Tim LoCastro. <laughs>
0: exactly. I mean, it's great. I, so Tim LoCastro is insanely fast. It's one of the best kept secrets of baseball, maybe.
1: Yes, the pride of uh, upstate New York, uh, Ithaca, I believe. As I was looking it up, we look at uh, those. So those are average numbers. Before we also just look at individual times hitting 30 feet per second. That's the elite number. We've kind of called that bolts. Uh, he is sixth right now at 33 number one is Mondesi at 52 but Tim LoCastro has only got 129 plate appearances Mondesi has 340 if I looked at this on a rate basis I imagine LoCastro would have been number one he is an elite speedster but as Matt will tell you that's not the only interesting thing about him
0: (laughs) in fact the most interesting thing about Tim LoCastro and why he is my new favorite player in baseball is because he gets hit by pitches at an insane rate Tim LoCastro has been hit by 13 pitches In 129 plate appearances. That means once every 9.9 plate appearances, he is getting hit by a pitch. For context, Craig Biggio, who holds the modern record with 285 hit by pitches, was hit once every 43.9 plate appearances. Huey Jennings, who used to get hit, who holds the all time record, but he played in like the 1800s, was hit once every 19.7 plate appearances. Locastro, and this is not a fluke, mind you, in the minors, he was hit. 32 times in 2014, then 32, 25, 31, 28. It's crazy. He has 13 hit-by-pitches. The Blue Jays, as a team, have 19 hit-by-pitches in almost 3,400 plate appearances Last this year.
1: Last August, he was playing in the minors, and he got into 29 games in the minor leagues, and he got hit 18 times. <laughs> if you look at the, uh, the five seasons between 2014 and 2018, he led the minors in hit-by-pitches with 146, the second guy was 94. So obviously, you know, there's a little bit of selection bias there because a lot of those guys don't play in the minors that long, but that's a big gap. That's not an accident.
0: And you know what? If you're Tim Castro, you don't really have a lot of power. You've got insane speed. You know, Rudy Stein, you got to get on base any way you can. <laughs>
1: well, you know, I was going to make the uh, you can't steal first base joke, but apparently now maybe you can if you've been following the Atlantic League where they might put in a new rule where if you if the ball is not caught clearly by the catcher, you can run to first on any count which I think is... That's cool. It's kind of fun. I mean, I don't know if it'll work. I don't know if I like it, but I know that I, I like things that are innovative. Maybe it'll suck. Maybe it'll be cool, but I, I think it's great to find out. Well, what's
0: also kind of interesting about it is sort the secondary impact. You think of a guy like Locaster or Billy Hamilton, right? Billy Hamilton can't really hit, but if the threat of a wild pitch he'd start seeing fewer breaking balls
1: you, you don't need me to back up the idea that hamilton can't really hit but i did look this up earlier uh, i looked at every qualified hard hit season in the five years of Statcast, and his five are the lowest five so this would this would actually because i was thinking about the strategic implications of this let's say it's 2-0 let's say it's a ball in the dirt and the catcher can't get it cleanly you generally want to hit with a 3-0 count it's like hugely in your favor but if you're billy hamilton do you say I'm taking this opportunity now? Not everybody would. If you were a power hitter, you probably wouldn't. But that's like almost a split second decision. Do I do I want this three zero count, or am I running like hell right now?
0: And that's sort of my point. So, like in in that scenario, guys like Hamilton would see fewer breaking balls because you wouldn't want to get, essentially he, a, a wild pitch could be like a free pass to him. So, so see well, he, more might fastballs. Actually, he might see more fastballs and actually hit better because he'd see more pitches in the strike zone. See,
1: that's, I think what I like about this is because when you hear the idea, you just think to yourself, Oh, that kind of weird. A guy'll maybe run to first on the first pitch, uh, you know, steal first base. That's like the big ticket headline. But if you dig a little deeper, there are so many implications to this, you know, it's like, I'm, and again, I'm not sure that I like it, but I love that there is a place to test it out. Cause we'll see what happens. And it, it could be cool.
0: Maybe we'll see. Um, so I, that's those are our, our second-half predictions. But, you know, the, the trade deadline is coming up. Trade deadline is literally my favorite time of the year just because there's so much kind of like – there's so many possibilities and so much kind of like game theory of like with well, this, with well, this, and this, the this. So um, what are your sort of like big-ticket kind of takeaways or thoughts as we approach the trade deadline?
1: Well, I'm writing something right now uh, about how the Giants should trade like their entire bullpen. You know, we, we are talking about Madison Bumgarner, and that's – he's Madison Bumgarner. That's going to be the name, right? Will Smith is like one of the five best relievers in baseball. Tony Watson's really good. Mark Melanson's bounced back. Uh, Sam Dyson's been really good. Reyes Maranta has long been one of my favorites. So what if you're, if you're Farhan Zaidi, right? And you clearly have been hired for a reason to completely overhaul baseball ops. Like Bruce Bochy's on his way out. Um, I know the Giants have been okay lately and they're like five and a half games. out. They're not competing this year. What if you were to go to the market and say, hey, every contender on earth needs at least two relievers? Maybe the Yankees don't, but certainly the Red Sox do, the Nationals do, the Dodgers do. I've got six guys, including Bumgarner. I'm going to open up the store for my entire pitching staff. Yes, I know it'll make the last two months of the season a little rough, but that's an organization that desperately needs talent. Well, you could package some of those guys. What if you go to the Nationals and say, you want three good relievers? I got them. You know what? If, what if you go to the, the play- got, some of those guys are, have team control
0: like uh, Will Smith's, so a, free agents Will Smith's a free agent after this year. Will Smith's a
1: free agent. Uh, Melanson's got a somewhat pricey contract for the next year. Marotta's got some team control. He's, he oh he's not even arbitration yet. Yeah. He's got like four more years to team control. Uh, I think Dyson's got one more year. Watson's got a player option, I believe. Um, but you could you could do like a cool package deal like that. You can go to the Twins. So it was reported that the Twins and the Yankees had gone to the Blue Jays uh, and said we want we want Stroman and Giles, right? Well, what if you're anxiety and you say, okay, cool. Well, what if you want Bumgarner and Smith and Maranta or Watson or whatever? You know, like that. That he is really the man with the keys to the entire trade deadline, which is exactly what that team needs because they they still have a lot of years left of Crawford and Belt and Posey, Posey and Ligoria. Like they they really you've seen their outfield. Maybe you have not Most people have not They desperately could use you know an influx of talent.
0: The you know, our uh, own John Morosi had two interesting pieces re- related to that. He had a piece yesterday talking about how the Giants and Dodgers might ma- are poised to kind of make a trade for the first time in ages because they match up well Because for a couple reasons, one of which is Dodgers actually need some bullpen help. And yeah. two, Zaidi just came from the Dodgers, and they actually, like, maybe there's— I'm,
1: I'm not sure if that helps or hurts. It, could, like, it, it, it helps true. the Giants because, okay, cool, you know, he is super familiar with these guys, the minor league, prospects for the Dodgers in a way he's not for the twins Yankees whatever but then also if you're if you're Andrew Friedman you're probably a little wary like oh what do you want with this guy
0: at the same time like I do think that those are the kinds of uh GMs and I could be wrong who aren't going to like subscribe to the old like old you can't change it no no absolutely not and also they're on kind of on different well, ti- they're kind of on different timelines I,
1: I mostly agree with that I think that's true for the relievers I don't think I don't think Zaydi would actually send Baumgartner to the no. Dodgers the Dodgers I think I think it's more like he'd like be their a, fifth starter anyway. yeah Will
0: Smith but then um, Marosi was reporting today that the Cardinals have been targeting Will Smith since basically before the season starts. And a combo of Bumgardner and Will Smith to the Cardinals makes a That's... ton of sense.
1: I looked this up yesterday. I was shocked by this. Did you know the Cardinals right now, just in terms of weighted on base, have had the most effective bullpen in baseball? That blew my mind away. They could definitely use Baumgartner. If they had Will Smith and my boy Giovanni Gallegos, even without, you know, Jordan Hicks. <laughs> and 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 Gant's been good and Brebbia's been good. And
0: Miller hasn't even, Andrew Miller hasn't even been that good.
1: The problem is they need some of their bats to hit <laughs> well that
0: and that's that they they they're not really going to really trade for hitters because it's more just where like, are you going to put
1: them you're not going to replace Goldschmidt. i guess like,
0: i mean if you kind of i mean the outfielder it, it depends how seriously ozuna's hurt right because yeah. it's like it's his injury is a little bit a little bit mysterious um but you really just need Goldschmidt and carpenter to hit better
1: um yeah because you can't replace those guys exactly so. and they're like, not, you play know. jose martinez <laughs> <laughs> that is that is the everlasting um theme of the show someone should play jose martinez
0: um now, you mentioned the Giants. For me, the most interesting team is the Blue Jays because they have Stroman, who has another year of team control after this, as does Ken Giles. And given that players who are impending free agents have a little less value because for, obviously, just one less year of team control and also you can't give them a qualifying offer, the Blue Jays are clearly rebuilding. They could have their first 100-loss seasons since 1979, Um I think that those two guys could bring in a lot, and also Stroman has a little bit of that kind of like he pitched well in the postseason for them, like kind of that bulldog mentality that might. The soft factors that I think would would play in their favor.
1: Uh, they both have one year of team control left. Yeah, I think they should extend Stroman. Right, you have you have Vlad up, uh, Bichette will be there soon. Right, you've got Vizioso up. Vizioso up. You, you can't <laughs> Some other have, sons are coming. Yeah, right. You can't have like a four-year process now. Like Vlad is here, man. Like make the most of it. I I understand. Like you know trade Ken Giles and see what you can get back, but who's who's your rotation next year? Aaron Sanchez has been essentially unpitchable.
0: I mean, I mean the hope would be that you'd get you'd get a pitcher in the high minors that could step into the rotation and be part of, like, the wave with, you know, come up with Bichette, and, um, but, I mean, it's, it's a fair point, but um, I feel like the Blue Jays are motivated to move those guys, and because of the extra year of team control, they might be a little more valuable than Bumgarner and Smith and Zach Wheeler. Those guys were all free agents after this season
1: we have let's see i think four more shows before the deadline we're remember gonna, there's only one trade deadline this year there's only one trade deadline this year uh we are we're gonna do another one on tuesday and then we'll probably do two more before the deadline so do you think we will see trades earlier because there's only one deadline um
0: i think that the i mean the it's, I, and, I think it, no
1: and i'll tell you why but you go first i was gonna say
0: i, th- I think if the, if the giants hadn't just got on that hot streak um I would have said yes, I would think the Giants would be about to unload, but they, I almost feel like it's a little weird that they might just wait a few more days, I, um, or a week or two.
1: I think the NL Central is screwing everything up, because the Reds are in last place, but they're only four and a half games out of first, uh, and if, and so kind of the same with the Pirates, right? So if they don't trade, those are a source of relievers, and then you're left with, do you really want like Baltimore relievers? Like A lot of the teams that are in last place are kind of there for a reason, San Francisco aside. Uh, so it's it's where are they going to come from if some of these teams still think they're in it,
0: and and also like the only players that are really worth trading for earlier are starters because you'd be like oh I can actually ever get extra starts I get yeah. extra starts so like in a certain way the only guys you might expect to move sooner would be Bumgarner and Zach Wheeler because every every time they start it like chips away a little bit yeah. of their value whereas like, we'll, like if you trade for a reliever it's really you're doing it because you think you're going to the postseason or for September games where you like want you know like their their marginal value on a game to game basis is fractional compared to you know a a starting pitcher
1: i predict we will see no big trades before our next podcast but that we will see at least one before the following one
0: um that seems right yeah i mean it's only four days away i know i know
1: i'm I'm, this is is a low risk prediction (laughs) uh you know satisfaction not guaranteed (laughs) that is our show for this week this is the mlb.com statcast podcast thanks for listening